Welcome to Technically Minded, a podcast brought to you by Cordera. We get technology leaders together to discuss what's happening in our world. Our discussions are always fun, lighthearted, and frankly opinionated. But hopefully it gives you a sense of what matters, what to pay attention to, and what to ignore. Today, as always, is Jason Goth with me. Welcome, Jason. Thanks, Vincent. And I think we're going to do something a little different today. I think actually you have a topic for us today. Is that right, Jason? I do, but this one may be a little rough. This may be a, a, a very hard podcast to listen to. I want to apologize to everyone. Set the bar because, low. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> because I do not have this one fully thought through. This is something that popped into my head as I was on an airplane back from vacation. And I thought, huh, that would be an interesting topic. And we scheduled it. And I didn't think anything else about it. So it <laughs> well, be I'm, very all, I'm up for experimentation. And, and by the way, that, that is that is the original spirit of this, right? The, the, the idea just for listeners who have been with us since the beginning is that really this, this all sort of emanated from conversations that Jason and I have over drinks and those may be alcoholic or not. I, I won't get into that right now. But the idea was that we just have these random conversations that were actually quite fascinating, and we wanted to try and capture some of that. So in this truest spirit, maybe, of that theme, that brief, if you will, let's hear it, Jason. What do you got for us? Well, it has to do with application architecture and data architecture. And I started thinking about a lot of the current work that we do is around modern data architecture. So transforming people's data infrastructure and their data, you know, data engineering into these more modern structures that are much less focused on relational databases, right? And more focused on having different types of data stores, processing streaming data mesh, if you will, streaming and having multiple different uh, types of uh, data processing in much more of a pipeline, you know, kind of pipe and filter architecture. And it reminded me, this is very much how applications looked back on the mainframe, right? You'd get a lot of batch files in, you'd have a lot of big batch set of batch jobs, a big pipeline that ran and, and, and things would end up in, in a set of tables. And, and I started wondering what got us away from that? And is, it a, is this a move back towards that um, as opposed to focusing really heavily on let's say larger application architectures issues? So what you're saying is you're validating everything I believe about myself, which is that uh, data, and therefore me, because I do data, is, is the most important thing, Jason. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> yes, as, as much as I hate to admit it. You know, we always say that data outlives applications. But for some reason, like we've started focusing much more on application issues, right, and, and less on data issues from about the time of, say, 2000 until now and and i think we're swinging back in that direction uh, i'm interested in why that is and is it a good thing i think perhaps that it is i think one of the reasons is that most applications we don't have large applications most applications now are turning into really small like hey i want a notification on my cell phone or i want a small widget on my watch we don't have these large um, monolithic applications anymore and so we don't have the, ne the necessarily the need for these really large uh, application patterns. And, um, you know, especially with the, some of these ideas like microservices where we can, well, it's, we can try something, we don't like it, we can throw it away, we can redo it, you know, in smaller, breaking the applications into smaller chunks. It just makes much more sense to focus on the data portion of that architecture. 
Well, so, so I'm excited. Let's let's dig into exactly that that concept. Then it's a great setup. Let me first back up a little bit. <clears throat> and again, in in all seriousness, I actually this is a legitimate question, not my normal snarky thing. Help me understand. <laughs> again, I'm not a computer scientist, but help me understand. If I think about what's going on here, it seems to me that applications or, or development in general, the, the things sitting around this space are fundamentally just ways to, in essence, like execute math or, or let's say logic, right? Let's just say logic for the, for the sake of keeping it broad here. Although I think those two are the same, but on some on some concept, some entity, some piece of data, really, right? Like, is, is it aren't computers effectively doing nothing more than just logical operations on the data? And if, if that's true, then my question is like, how do you even get to a world where you're not primarily focused on the flow of the data and build everything around that? How do you get to a place where data becomes sort of a second rate citizen to the actual design of the system? Does that make sense? It does. And, you know, I think that this is always something that developers struggled with. Like we have a large class of tools like object relational mappers, right? You know, we map relational data to an object structure in our code. Like, why do we do that? Why is there this uh, gap, this thing that has to be bridged in the first place? I think is your question. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I, I don't know that I have a good answer. This is part the part of the blog where I haven't thought all the way through it, but I think, you know, in, in large part, that that did there was a a fairly close mapping in older systems when we in for the mainframe example and, and when we started moving to more desktop based solutions and so you know the first desktop applications were not big data entry things they were word processors and spreadsheets and you know corel draw if you remember corel mm -hmm. which was is uh uh, at one point, I think it was larger than Microsoft right, in the early 90s or, or late 80s. I'll have to look that up. But, you know, and the, they were very much desktop applications or, or games, right? It's all that, there. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that didn't necessarily interact with data. And then as, as we started moving into more, we'll call the client server world or the internet, the beginning of the internet world, where things were on servers and those servers were largely based on the same PC architecture and the same PC patterns. When I say PC, I mean personal computer, right? Um, it's a loaded term these days, but the, but we carried forth some of those, those patterns, which were really, I think, designed for more interactive style software, as mm. opposed to, let's say business software that was taking in data to issue an insurance quote, for example. Hmm. So, so if I just play that back, what you're saying is early days of the mainframe. And I mean, we can go back before that in some sense. Like we think about the original computer, it was just a code code cracking machine was the goal, right? So you get this piece of data called, you know, an intercepted transmission and you're trying to decode it effectively, right? So very data centric. But what you're saying is like mainframes took that, they understood that they were they're sort of singular in their purpose and, and really focused around the data. But as we got to this place where we're outside the mainframe and other use cases like word processing or email or gaming for example became more front and center we we sort of drifted away from this concept that the data is the purpose of the machine and we found all these other creative solutions for that which led to a, a fundamentally different approach to these problems is that right yes that's what i said i don't know if it's right but <laughs> that is exactly what i, I was thinking 
and that is where you get the, the rise of you know these object oriented big object oriented systems the original idea of object oriented systems was, went back into the late 60s early 70s with alan Kay. he was a computer scientist that sort of coined that term and he had this prototype machine he called it a dynabook and it and it look if you look at it and there was something he i think drew up and mocked up out of cardboard in the late 60s or early 70s but it looked very much like an ipad hmm. and he, he had envisioned it as a way for really to teach children right and so you you'd have a picture of a giraffe on the dynabook and you could touch it or click on it and you know you could see all about giraffes and you know these these object oriented models came up very much around that kind of very interactive experience and with a with a fairly complete world mm-hmm. or complete system or you, you know small talk alan k developed the language small talk to develop this and and it has the idea of its own universe right it, within the virtual machine and and so you know we we developed a lot of these patterns and then they became somewhat the, the dominant pattern and then as we moved into these more and more applications being being done through automation you know insurance quote airline tickets you name it like let's put it all online let's put it all on mobile phone you can just do it and these things become very much more just data part you know data processing Mm -hmm. so to speak as opposed to the the original intent and that's where i think we found instead of building these massive applications like we can compose you know things out of lots of small chunks and we don't even need to compose massive applications we can now expose just little chunks to you um, but even if we did need a larger application we could still compose it and the, does that mean that some of these you know older patterns of, of data processing you know batch processing streaming processing and, and, and pre-processing data into something that's just quickly and easily either pushed out or captured is a better is a better approach yeah so if we were to have a giraffe example, I mean, that sounds like sort of what we think about when we think about graph DBs, right? Like this sort of design where we have this entity and we have all of these sort of attributes and those are connected. And if you take it from giraffe, you might find out they're located in zoos or in some part of Africa or whatever. And you can go to Africa or you can go to a zoo and you can find the things associated with that and so on and so forth. Is that mm-hmm. is that where he was thinking or? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I was thinking. And so, so how do we, even in that world, you said, when was that? What year did you say roughly? I was gonna, I'm going to say 68, but I'm not sure. <laughs> well, that still feels very mainframe, Ask Okay, fair enough. So how do we go from this idea where, where people in the 60s kind of understood where we are now, in essence? Like, we have this community to do a lot of that now. Like, w- why did we take this sort of left turn? Like, what, what was the motivating factor, do you think, that led to a world where we didn't just go straight, straight line to what we're talking about today? I mean, I think one is just capacity you know like where you have the capacity today uh, to do very large scale data sets very large scale processing Mm -hmm. in a very short amount of time which we did not have in the 60s 70s and 80s there there are a lot of constraints you know you you see you know a very common pattern is like well we have this relational database that's our online system and the application uses it but then we don't report on that we replicate that into some reporting solution and then we replicate that into some data warehouse solution and those are those were good solutions because they were, you know you had constraints the database the hardware the networks they they couldn't handle processing all three of those in the same Got solution it. you see that a lot in some of the solutions today 
it's more of a singular data store that's you know multi-purpose even even some of let's say google tools like uh spanner and others they, they were like well you can do you can do the data processing you can do big reports you can do analytical functions all within the same infrastructure got it so so yeah i mean this is this is where it may it starts to make a bit more sense to me because if i think back in my career even even just a few years really or, or even today for some of our legacy, for people who are coming from legacy industries, I think a lot of the infrastructure looks like this, where you have some real-time operational store that your application leverages. And as people take actions, put stuff in their cart, buy stuff from your e-com site, et cetera, they, that store lives in production, of course, and only the application has it. And yet we can't do any analytics on that. We can't actually do machine learning on that. We can't even build dashboards off of that. We actually have to take that data and copy it over to some analytics store, like a Vertica or some OLAP type system, often columnar store for optimized for analytics, et cetera. And then we're like, oh, well, we can't really do inference in that database. It doesn't have access to Sam in the compute. We need like Spark or other jobs, SageMaker, et cetera. Um, and so we actually take a copy of that data and then enrich it with other data. And then we have a whole different database. And, and the challenge fundamentally becomes at that point, now you have at least three copies, and in reality, it's more like five is what we typically see, somewhere around five copies of data. And while data is cheap in some sense, keeping those things aligned becomes the big challenge. Right, like for example, if, if somebody opts out of your email marketing campaigns, that might live in your CRM or your email system, but you have to propagate that everywhere else that you might show them that same campaign. And that's just, there's a huge amount of complexity in that. How do you keep these things in line and sync, et cetera, across multiple stores and different time horizons? So what you've seen then, to your point, is like organizations, uh, this, a lot of the research came out of like the AMP lab at Berkeley, for example, where I went. Um, you see it in, in Databricks recently with like lake house architecture, where we're going to consolidate it all back down to a single database. And it sounds like what you're saying is the reason we just didn't go there straight away, even though it was sort of natural, it was a logical progression, and clearly on the way to where we're going to go is that the technology wasn't there in essence. Is that right? No, it wasn't. And that's what led to some of that partitioning. Availability is also a big thing, you know, for that. It's like we didn't have the technologies that if, even if we could put something all in like one big database, that thing would go down, everything would go down. So we had some level of, you know, bulkheads partitioning like in a ship mm -hmm. so that we could isolate failures. But I, I think back to that, does it all live in one or do we have some of these more complex pipelines to move things around? I don't think either one of those is necessarily bad. My, and even if we did want, you know, built systems that were more along the lines of passing things around and, and processing in different stages and having da different data available in different forms at different stages, I still think that that's a really good solution in, in some cases. But what I'm suggesting is that that may be more of the application architecture. And like mm -hmm. we're just then the, the interfaces may just be exposing things at various points along that uh, data processing pipeline or it could all be in one i wonder if we, we put it all in one if it might lead us back to be more of the big archi you know big application architecture patterns yeah that's re that's really interesting and, and it also sounds like getting back to that point you mentioned it, it sounds like you're kind of pushing towards that data mesh architecture too but what's interesting here that i don't think i've read anybody else talking about yet and listeners if you if you know of something please send it over to us at credera.com the piece is like, what would it look like to start designing applications with a data first mentality? So for example, you're going to design some notification on or some application for your watch. What would that architectural design look like if you took a data first approach as opposed to, I mean, how do you do it today? You think about technology? Well, that, actually, that's, it's, funny that, it's funny that you, you mentioned that. 
because you know that used to be on the mainframe what we would do there we would build data flow diagrams and mm. that would show the data flow and then you know we always knew once it got to this final form here or that final form we could build a, a map on front of it the front of it and let people enter that data or map over here and let people enter the data to be processed i think that you know back to your original question how do we you know as we the pendulum has swung back and forth what caused it to swing to where we are now and i think that is another factor by the way you just mentioned which is like we have a very very user-centered design approach mm-hmm. right so like how do users interface with data where are the different points in you know a customer's journey in the life cycle over on which form factors and what do they see and and so we start there with the user which is a good thing i'm not suggesting that that's not but that tends to drive its way back into the architecture and kind of segment it along the same lines mm-hmm. well it feels a bit like conway's law then back to back to this point or, or is that not what you're going yeah conway's law is more organizational um th- this is more along the lines of like we're starting from from user design and so we get we get the same kind of segmentations as, as what, you know, users come in to buy and they oh, come in to check in. So we have a buy system and a check-in system. And, and the, the data has to, to flow along those lines. If we took a data first design perspective, we'd have to think through, okay, well, how do we make sure we still have good customer journeys? Or do we build this bridge from both ends? Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. And we should, yeah, so this, it, again, it feels a bit like Conway's law, but that one's more about internal organizational structures. This one's more about the customer centric historically, but our architectural designs today reflect that. So we'll call it goth law for lack of a better no. name. I like the data first uh, <laughs> application design pattern. The, the interesting thing here is it feels a bit like the two have converged in some sense anyway. Meaning that, it, again, if I rewind the clock a few years in my career, I remember hanging out with developers and they kept talking about, oh, everything's going to be these loosely coupled architectures, APIs, that we're not going to have monolithic code bases. That way we can be, anybody can sort of move quickly on their own and not be re- entirely reliant on those around them, et cetera. To the place that we are today where we have, you know, Kafka, for example, are these, stre- are these streaming services where you can publish to the world effectively and anybody can set up a listener and do their own kind of thing. Again, still loosely coupled. Is that, am I hearing you right? Is that sort of the way you're going with this? Is that we're already starting to move towards that direction and now it's not a natural time to reevaluate. Like, what is the right way to approach this moving forward? Well, I mean, we're clearly moving towards it, right? You need to look at any of the if you look at Google or Amazon or Azure, like what's a good data data architecture look like? You know, mm-hmm. Data processing architecture look like they're they're very you know distributed large distributed systems that that are pipelines essentially. It looks very pipe and filterish to me, where we have different stages where the uh, data is available in, in different forms and brings in and merges and mm-hmm. other data and and so I think we are definitely there. We're, we're struggling to figure out like, okay, well, what do we do from an application perspective around that? Mostly because those two worlds have been somewhat separate. And I think that's one of the things I, I am suggesting for sure is like, well, we need to have those developers and the data folks together mm-hmm. and think through that. What does the data need to look like? How does it need to be stored? How does it need to be processed? And then how do we expose that to the right people? Got it. Yeah, no, that's really good. And, and the other bit of that would be how much of, of the mainframe experience you have, like if, if that's the approach you used to take, then are there sort of already paradigms, frameworks, processes that have been developed over decades of developing on mainframes that we can kind of just immediately copy and paste over to the new world? 
Yeah, well, I think we'd want to leverage some of the things that we've learned, right? You know, the data flow diagrams are always great, and, but we we have b- better approaches to that these days. And, you know, the UI modeling and approaches we used to take, we have better approaches to that, you know, in, today. And so I think we have all of the things that we, we need in order to do this. I think it's more of a realization that we... We need to not design applications and data in silos, mm-hmm. and that that's certainly one. I think the other thing is we need to like recognize that applications, you know, as we shrink applications into smaller and smaller pieces, and who knows how long that'll last. Right, we may in ten years be like we need to get all this stuff in one place, but um, but as we continue to do that, we need to think more about the journey across and i think that may be what has driven a lot of this right we we got to where we were very siloed we had different applications and now we started thinking about the journey across them and it's like wait all of a sudden this data has to all be right you know connected and, and right. everything else but that's, that's exactly what i think what's leading to a lot of like the super apps that you see in china the u.s doesn't actually have any of this which is remarkable i don't i don't actually understand why and that's probably worth you know a trillion dollars so whoever still thought idea could no, not stealing it but uh, i think that's that's a big opportunity yeah, for us WeChat we, and, yeah exactly if we chat like which is that is your chat application. That's your communication application. That's your e-commerce application. That's your payment application. That's your everything. And the power of that, if you, especially with that company, is that now you can give more personalized experiences across all of those things. So when I want to send you some money, it's trivial because I've, I'm already talking to you. I already have the application. They know who you are. They know who I am. They know that we know each other. It's not even a scam at this point because we've been talking or we've been sharing stuff, other things like this. And I think what's motivating a lot of that, again, back to the point, is the data share. Like, how do you get the data across all those platforms? How do you know who Jason is? If I want to send you what's popular these days, uh, I guess Zelle. Zelle's popular. How do I even find you? I mean, they make it fairly with a phone number, I suppose, but other solutions, uh, the ones just the generation before, like PayPal's Venmo. and Venmo's, I'd have a username and you know, I'm going to type it right, et cetera, et cetera. I think send that, you a QR code. <laughs> exactly. Or even even today, LinkedIn. Like if you want to find someone on LinkedIn, you're at a conference or whatever, like it's actually remarkably difficult unless you can find the little spot where your QR code exists. But back to the point, like the data ends up being the most important part. And so if we start taking this approach that you're describing here, it seems like we'd actually end up in a much better place from a data processing and data storage, data management standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really just... Again, I really want to. I want to lean into if that's where we started with mainframes. That was really the place. Then we had to think through carefully. Why did that not continue to work? And what what led us to this layer of abstraction where we lost sight of that core element of the data? And it could just be, frankly, that historically, especially in the '60s or '70s or whatever '90s, even like we just didn't have that much data. And in the data that you did have was too difficult to compete on it was too too expensive to store it was too hard to collect well i think it's the the pc is what happened right because the pc came out you know the personal computer and mm-hmm. although there was not good you know, there was no like 10 meg internet right to connect these things were and so the only place you could keep those big data sets would, would still be on the mainframe and there was not an easy way to connect to them you would still be using you know 3270 to to do a green screen app right and but you know the the applications that started getting developed were very much developed to run on a personal computer mm-hmm. which meant limited data sure limited size and then different applications for different things like less less connected suites of uh, you know what, what did you call them uh super apps super apps right yeah. 
uh, where, where that you might actually see that. And, and there is some downside to that. You know, you can get some inappropriate coupling where you've got like some super apps where it's impossible to, to, to do, you know, replace one of these things without the others. I, I don't well, think we want to fix that. Well, that's where, that's where the cloud providers are nowadays, yeah. right? Like, I mean, the whole, the whole Microsoft play in some sense, the Apple play in some sense, Google play is to, is to get you into the ecosystem Microsoft with Outlook, right? Everybody wants Outlook. That's what you want to buy. And like, well, you can't buy Outlook by itself. You must also buy O365 and you must also buy Azure and you must also buy all these other things, which again, from a data connectivity standpoint, is terrific. They can they can understand how this works across the entire ecosystem and give you a better experience, but you can't replace just one. I, I still think you want to have like good interfaces so that you can, you know, use different chat application if you want or different you know i can pay well, you know pay different payment providers or whatever but like but how would how would that work like you'd have to have some new standard some new like sms yeah. type stand not literally but yeah, standards based I, I do think standards based you know uh back from an application design perspective i'm a big believer in, in standards based design and again but even that has some trade-offs i mean but like what's the most frequently used application in the world it's probably email mm -hmm. right and how many email providers are there and how many email softwares have there been over the years and yeah. that all just work seamlessly together. And if you look at big applications that have evolved and grown and become ubiquitous, the web, right? It's again, very standards based and standards also allow us to extend. Like if we, when we had the web, we came up with SSL, you know, for security works right in and it works the same and it works everywhere. You know, that's a, a minor miracle, right? That, that we were able to add SSL to the web, like we still haven't added it to email. Yeah. Right. And right. so standards-based solutions, I think prevent that kind of lock-in, but it doesn't mean that we, we can't all have the same data. Well, well, I think like to your point, like you're right, the standards, the standards base allows you to sort of switch between providers, which is good probably for the marketplace. If you think about preferred monopolies effectively, which is where we are with a lot of data these days and a lot of applications these days, but the challenge is if you're standards-based, you end up losing some ability to innovate too, right? To your point, email is still to this day just clear text, which is mind-boggling and insane. And it's, yes, you can get certificates and make Outlook do it with a bunch of work and assuming people on the other end have done a bunch of work and it's just not practical. So how do you, and, and by the way, the thing I was gonna set up here as you were saying that, I was like, oh geez, our listeners are gonna be like harassing us now about like, wait a minute, isn't that what blockchain does? Um, so, so like, I, anyway, but I want to get back to this point about standards in general and, and yes, blockchain is a standard. And I guess this is the part I want to dig into a little bit. It's just like, what does that, what would that standard even look like? Or what are the risks in that standard? And I alluded to some, but I'm, I'm trying yeah. to like tease that out more. Well, I think we got a little bit of our field and by the way, blockchain is a standard. It's just a bad one, but, uh, <laughs> but no, you know, we were talking about like, as you know, we have these super apps, like we, you know, yeah. how do we prevent from, you know, becoming massive applications that then have that kind of disconnect from the data because of the application complexity has gotten so large. We have to put all this abstraction and other things in there to make it manageable. Mm -hmm. That's where we get all these application patterns and like, well, let's get rid of that and get it back closer to the data. Well, I think we can still do that, but by, by doing some, some type of standards, standards for accessing the data, that kind of thing. Yeah. No, and I, I think it's really interesting and, I mean, this is this is exactly, I think, the specious argument that, that does make blockchain kind of appealing from, from the standpoint, which is like, look, if, if it's all about data and you take a data-first architecture and you want to have some standards that allow people to share data across these apps, you don't get locked into just one, you want that to be 
decentralized, maybe, maybe you don't, doesn't actually matter. You want it to be accessible from lots of people, though, at least, right? And blockchain seems to address some of that, but actually, as we've talked about before, and, we won't, and I'm not trying to get into it today, to be clear, but like, I think there are some just challenges in that approach. I guess my question to you, and it's not about blockchain specifically, but in general, do you think the technology holistically is in a place now mature enough that it can actually handle that? Because back to the point, we have lots of databases today in legacy systems because they couldn't handle the speed and the reliability and the robustness and the, and the, and the. And so we had to have bespoke solutions for each one of those use cases. Well, this database is really fast. This one's great for analytics and it's quick. This one's great for scale. This one's great for, you know, non-normalized data, for example. Do we think that we're at a place where this stuff actually is possible now? We could take a data-first approach and start streamlining some of that design around the data itself? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, now, I, I think and certainly within some companies, right? Uh, yes, mm -hmm. right? You know, it, or within a, any single company, I think that the technology exists for that company to do it. Now, if that works across companies, that may be more difficult and it may not even be something we want to do but mm -hmm. I, I do think standard data interchange like airlines our edi for airlines mm -hmm. can share availability and passenger and seat and baggage information right all because it's very standardized right and so i think what we're really talking about is not those standards and interchange but like how any one of those airlines in particular handles it within i do think that we're probably at a point where some of the technologies can do that got it Okay, so then practically, next steps for people, if they wanted to explore this more, you know, reach out to us, we'd love to chat with you. I think the other thing though, that you mentioned is, is these process, data process, data flows, what do you call them? Data? data flow diagrams. Data flow diagram, DFD, okay. Mm -hmm. Start, I need to go Google that, I guess is the headline there. But start like thinking through this from that perspective, which is like, okay, given, again, if you take a UX approach, take a design first approach, user-centered design, you think through the use case, okay, well, what data am I actually surfacing to people? Like what, what insight, what help am I making them to drive a different outcome based off the data? And then kind of working backwards through the data flow is, is perhaps like a logical, try, just try it kind of thing. And I think we, we'll try it for some of yeah. our clients right now. Why not, right? Yeah, that's what I, I do think we just need to try it. And I would not say we're experimenting on our client. I think we're bringing best practices from many years of experience to our clients. But now I do think we need to, to try it and, and think through it a little bit. Like I said, this was a, uh, something I thought I had over the Gulf of Mexico coming back from, from Argentina. Yeah, and I think it's, it's an interesting idea to explore, for sure. And I think that um, this was fun. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate the, uh, the different format today. If you'd like to learn more, please visit the Insights page at Cordero.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us again.